Hello everyone, and thank you very much for listening to Blank Page Book Club. It's the third episode, and it's a fine March afternoon. And today I have brought together my friends John and Jess, as well as my very own fiance Gemma. And we are going to be talking today about P.G. Woodhouse's book, The Code of the Worcesters, one of the Jeeves and Worcester series. We're also going to try and talk a little bit about class and whether Britain is still as class-ridden a society as it was in the times depicted in that book. Um, I hope you enjoy listening. As ever, you can find links to our Twitter page, which is at Blank Page Club, down in the description. Um, and from there, you can see our own Twitter accounts as well. Uh, we've also got a Facebook page uh, where you can follow us. Just search for Blank Page Book Club on Facebook and you'll find us there. Thank you very much for listening. Okay, thanks everybody for listening. I'm here today with John. Say hello. Yo. And Gemma. Hello. And Jess. Hi. Hi. We're going to talk about Jeeves and Worcester. Uh, if, if you don't know what that is, it's a series of books and stories written by P.G. Woodhouse in the 30s? This one was in the 30s, yeah. 30s, 40s. I think it was like uh, 10s, 20s, 30s, 40s. It like spanned long quite a long time. Word. I mean, Jeeves was around for... A basic Wikipedia told me this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And it's basically the adventures of a upper-class uh, fop called Bertie Worcester and his uh, his gentleman's personal gentleman, Jeeves. <laughs> and, their, and their various uh, entanglements and, and mishaps. Uh, the one we're sort of looking at really today is called The Code of the Worcesters, which is one of the full-length uh, stories. Some of the, a lot of Jeeves things are short stories, but this is a longer, a longer one. Um, yes, John, was this your first time reading? It was my first experience of Jeeves and Worcester actually reading, but I'd known them as a cultural force. Uh, <laughs> as long as I can remember. Obviously, there was the Fry and Laurie version in the early 90s. I used to love those. And Jess is holding up her edition, <laughs> which has got Fry and Laurie on the front. Yeah. Um, which was, it was just a bit strange. I was aware of it, but like too young to kind of really appreciate it, but kind of got a gist of what it was. And then, as I've grown up, I've kind of read essays by other people extolling the virtues of it. So, like, um, I remember reading a book of essays of Douglas Adams where he's going on about the comic genius of P.G. Woodhouse. Which just makes me wondering, wonder why I was reading a book of essays by Douglas Adams. But um, <laughs> and I was just like, oh, I will check out this one day. Um, and you know, obviously, I finally have. And it was a bit strange because I didn't know coming into it whether I'd had all these preconceived notions about uh, Jeeves and Worcester. You know, um, that it'd be funny and there'd be the because twit, and then uh, Jeeves would get him out of everything and be a bit sarcastic. Um, but I didn't know if it'd be completely opposite to that. Because yeah. sometimes you have things that have a reputation that when you actually do read them you find it's or see them that it's not the same as what you've been led to believe so I had that real the metamorphosis by Franz Kafka I was really led to believe it's going to be this really kind of bleak tale that was one thing when I read it I got something completely different um, but I can say no I got exactly what I expected with G's and Worcester yeah. Yeah. it was very funny <laughs> uh, and I've got lots to say about it but I'll probably say it later okay. but I enjoyed it yeah yeah how about you Jess um, I'd read the only I'd not read Jeeves and Worcester. Similar to John, basically everything John said, I knew of it, and I think 
it probably felt as though I'd definitely read quite a few of them before when I started reading. Did you ever watch the TV, the Flying Laura? Because that was my first introduction to I it. I don't know if I did, but at the same time, I feel like, um, you know, Laurie and Fry have been like so kind of typecast ever since that it, it might as well have been that I that I did watch those. I mean, Blackadder yeah, III is yeah. basically yeah. <laughs> Jeeves yeah. and Worcester. But with Rowan Atkinson in the sort of jeevish role. Jeevish. You know, so. is, that new, is that a new adjective? Which is <laughs> it kind. is. Um, I'm but... particularly jeevish about that. <laughs> <laughs> Except, yeah, more more bitter, more malicious, <laughs> and uh, many of the plots don't turn out quite so well. Um, but yeah, so this was the first time I'd come across that. I'd read a bit of PG Woodhouse before. I think I'd read some of the Blandings oh, yeah. based ones. But um, apart from that, nothing really um but i do feel like i've read a lot of stuff that's written in a kind of similar sort of style like three men in a boat is a kind I, of I similar yeah. use of language i think and some of the um early sort of evelyn war stuff you know the more upbeat evelyn wars is kind of a bit like that in its use of sort of um you know london slang from the 20s 30s kind of thing so um it felt yeah it felt nicely familiar and i did enjoy it and i did i did laugh out loud a lot of the times and i marveled at um at the plot yeah. <laughs> as yeah. well in that kind of right he's managed to bundle um, incredibly intricate plotting it's yeah like a, it's like a seinfeld episode <laughs> yeah he's bundled poor bertie worcester yeah. poor bertram into <laughs> such an entanglement of different um, I don't know, so obli- like the, obligations so that like the, you can't believe he's ever going to get out of it, even with Jeeves' help. But. So the plot of The Code of the Worcesters is, briefly, that Bertie is asked by his aunt Dahlia to, at the beginning, to, to go and sneer at a cow creamer. So he has to go to an antique shop and sneer at this cow creamer in order to devalue it in the eyes of the vendor. Yeah, because his uncle collects these weird silver objects. Yeah, and so he might as well get a better deal if Bertie goes and sneers at it. Modern Dutch. Which he does, but it kind of goes slightly wrong. Uh, and then someone else buys it and takes it to Totley Towers, which is, which is where... Um, Watkin Bassett that buys it. Watkin Bassett buys it, takes it to Totley Towers, where Bertie has to go anyway, because... <laughs> his friend Gussie Fink Nottle. Yeah, Gussie Fink Nottle is engaged to Madeleine Bassett. And, but, but something's going wrong. And this is terrifying for Bertie, because... Um, if if the engagement between Gussie and Madeline goes wrong, then he is next in line. To, he, he Madeline will next. want to marry him, which he's terrified of because he hates Madeline Bassett. Because he was his previously code of chivalry, engaged to her, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, and his code of chivalry will not permit him to reject her. So <laughs> if she wants to marry him, there's not, little he can do about it. So he has to fix their relationship. So he has to go to Totley Towers to do that. But then he now he's got another job as well, which is to sort out this cow creamer problem. On top of that, when he gets there, the Stiffy Bing. Uh who wants him to intervene in her putative engagement to Stinker Pinker. <laughs> so there's basically this whole kind of labyrinthine, elaborate, plot, farcical plotting um, and if, in, ludicrous entanglements that only Jeeves can solve. You always get the feeling at any point that if he really wanted to, he could just walk away yeah. and nothing <laughs> would affect him. Because essentially, he's a millionaire who can do whatever the hell he wants. <laughs> But it all kind of is at the same time of the utmost importance to him, and also he doesn't care. Like, he's in the point of going to prison, he's just sitting there reading a book because he's like, why not? <laughs> John, you're missing the title of the book, which is The Code of the Worcesters. And he obviously, well, he many times talks about 
what a Worcester has yeah. to do. You Never know? let a pal down. <laughs> yeah, you and various a, other things it's besides. It's often said of a Worcester. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, Gemma, come on. Tell us about what you, what do you reckon to the code of the Worcesters. I look, I, um, I, I must admit, I've not read this one all the way through. Um, I know the plot of it because of the Jeeves and Worcester TV show. Um, I've read a lot of Jeeves and Worcester. I read a lot of Jeeves and Worcester in India, where you could pick one up in almost every bookshop. I don't know. Are they big fans over there? Apparently so. Um, I don't know if that's because possibly of the the notion of Britain. It's like the American Benny Hill thing, you know, they just want to think. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Um, Do you think they're also fans of Downton Abbey and crap like that? Yeah, possibly. Um, or they maybe they do think that all Brits are made up of bumbling, lovable idiots and then Jeebses. Or maybe they're the former libraries of old colonial expats. <laughs> maybe. No, these were all new. They were all, all, right. new, all new in bookshops. They were just all, yeah, had massive collections of them, strangely. Um, I, um, on, on my social work course, I, one of the... Um, when we started, we were given a list of books that we could read and discuss with our tutors. And one of them was a Jeeves and Muster book. I can't remember which one. And I was desperate to find out why a particular tutor had set this book to look at, because we had to read it within a sort of social work context. <laughs> and the tutor wasn't in in the end, so I never got to discuss it with him. So I don't know why, what this tutor found so significant about Jeeves and Muster in terms of social work other than possibly Jeeves is a social there's basically Bertie's social worker <laughs> I like to think there's an alternative story because although it's the Jeeves and Worcester series Jeeves is like a really ghost-like presence in this book he's only on on the page for maybe six or seven maybe ten pages out of the however many but the real story is that Jeeves wants to go on a round the world cruise. Yeah. <laughs> and he tells him he's going to, he tells Worcester he's going to go on the round around the cruise on the first page. Worcester says he isn't. I'm on the last page, they go on a round the world cruise. <laughs> that's basically Spoiler. all that. That's Jeeves just kind of stands there smirking and then gets to go on a cruise. <laughs> yeah. Much shorter story. Yeah. But that's also the plot. Yeah. <laughs> and one, one of the ways, um, one of the ways that Jeeves manages to uh, get his round the world cruise by sorting out all of Bertie's problems is by exposing. Roderick Spode, who is a... Um, I want to talk more about Roderick Spode. Yeah, okay, we'll talk about Spode. But Spode is... Well, he's a fascist, so he's he's part of this group of black, black shorts. shorts. <laughs> who all go around wearing black shorts. So he's, it's like, a, it's like a, a literal and deliberate sort of parody of Mosley, I guess, who was around at the time. Yeah, well, they they actually kind of uh, allude to that. They're like, you mean the black shirts? No, all the shirts have been taken. <laughs> Obviously referred to the brown shirts and... Um, so, but what's, what, Jeeves manages, what Jeeves manages to discover is that Spode, as well as leading the black shorts, also makes women's underwear, designs women's underwear, and that he's so terrified of this information coming to light, and that's what Jeeves manages to bribe him with, uh, to stop him from attacking Bertie. And so that's how Jeeves manages to get his, his round-the-world cruise. Yeah. It's possible the social work angle that they were looking at is Jeeves basically exploiting Bertie's he's, vulnerabilities. He's very manipulative, isn't well, he? he know, and he knows, yeah, he knows... Because I wasn't thinking about that. I, was cause I couldn't help myself but read it in the wrong way. It's a romp. It's supposed to be fun. But part of me just couldn't turn my... 
oh my god you know this is set in a world where you know in the real world this is what was happening there's lots of poverty about and it's just treated like there aren't any problems but maybe and i'm reading it the uh, wrong way um but i kept on thinking you've obviously got jeeves who by all accounts by every single character is a goddamn genius mm. and yet he's a manservant yeah you know he should be running the country essentially one of the lines <laughs> that made me made me laugh so much in the book earlier on was when uh, bertie says we must put ourselves to a higher power and gussie says you mean jeeves <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's so many funny turns of phrase in it it's like every page has just got Five or ten, absolutely hilarious. Just little phrases, little similes, analogies, or just turns of phrase that are really funny. Yeah, the characterisation of Bertie's just... It's there straight away, yeah, isn't it? Just because of the language. His kind of badly remembered Latin phrases and his mixture of that kind of Oxford language that he's picked up at is, but not, not really understood, and then his kind of slang. It's perfect. It's, so, it's well, really funny. It's... And little abbreviations that sometimes I couldn't work out what they were meant to say. Yeah. And that's deliberate as well. It's just like... <laughs> Yeah, okay. But I, I thought I felt like it was almost like uh, spinning plates because it felt so effortless, but it's so well done all the way through. Like, the tone is how you kind of... And I, I think, like, because it's a first-person narrator, if it was a third-person, it might be that you'd end up feeling like the author was mocking uh, yeah. Bertie. But he just gets it to the point of... Whereas you're in no doubt at any point that Bertie's a complete idiot, but at the same time, you and the author have got real great affection for him. Mm. Like, there's no point where you're not, you never, you laugh at him, but you definitely laugh with him as well. Your, your sensibilities are with him and you want everything to kind of be okay. Yeah, you do. It reminded me of, in that sense, it's like Alan Partridge. You know, you laugh at Alan Partridge a lot, but at the same time, you sort of want him to succeed in the end. <laughs> you know, but like... I, I don't think uh, Bertie's like in a kind of, there's a very abhorrent side to. Um, Alan Partridge, you can't really call him a well-meaning fool. That's the thing, Bertie's a good person, isn't he, ultimately? He is. He hasn't got malice in him. No, no. He's actually got no ambition or wants, apart from a good meal. That's all he wants. (laughs) What Anatole's cooking. (laughs) His only aim in life is to have like not have problems for his friends and have Anatole's cooking. Oh, yeah, the, the whole like motivation behind the cow creamer and uh, getting it back for his uncle is so that the so that he's able to go to Aunt Dahlia's house, isn't it, and have Anatole's cooking. That's what she holds over him. <laughs> That's the bribery. It's amazing. <laughs> do you do you think that the does Jeeves and Worcester? Do you think it's uh what's its attitude towards the upper classes is it is it is it mocking is it affectionate is it you know how would you dis- do you think it's well it's, it's very difficult to see because it made me think i was thinking back to what we're talking about the catcher in the rye when i wasn't here and everyone's crying um <laughs> but uh you know what jen was saying about uh holden caulfield being a not being a unsympathetic character but you're seeing the whole thing through his eyes and it's the same kind of thing, I mean, you could, again, make the argument you're seeing the whole thing through Bertie Worcester's eyes. So everything's coloured by that. But then at the same time, I'm thinking, I'm overthinking this again, aren't I? Really, it's, I feel like P.G. Woodhouse does one thing really, really well, which he writes this excellent character, he writes really funny stuff. But if I'm looking at it for class commentary and a wider worldview, I'm probably looking at the world wrong thing. Um uh, I think it is an affectionate parody of the upper classes. You know, they're all idiots, but who really cares? I mean, you could you could claim that the book was slightly misogynistic as well, but then at the same time, you're supposed to laugh at Bertie's attitude yeah. towards women. Cause... A lot of the potentially more difficult stuff, subject matter in it, or the difficult kind of 
yeah, is it classist? Is it sexist? It's basically undone by the fact that Bertie's such an oaf, mm. like, and it's it's in his voice the whole time. So he is just, and all of all of his friends, Barmy Fungy Phipps and Gussie Finknottle and all these people. <laughs> everyone that go to the drones. They're all everyone goes to the drones club. They're all just presented as yeah, lovable oafs. Basically, they don't know what they're doing. They can't look after themselves. Yeah. They're just idiots, you know. But presented in yeah, a really affectionate way. Because I, I was reading a review of. Jeeves and Worcester, and it's basically saying, don't go, don't go to it for uh, any of these kind of deep stuff. Just yeah. enjoy it for what it is. But then I was thinking about it, like you do, stuff is alluded to. It said the review I read was in a thousand and one books you should read before you die, which probably tells you more about me than it should. <laughs> um, but it was saying that it's kind of untouched by the world wars. You know, this is completely. But I. It does allude to it all. Like, it's all there. It's not like he doesn't live in the real world. He, me- he mentions Wormwood Scrubs. It mentions bombs dropping on people. It mentions, at some point, uh, like, people wanting to cut him to see what he looks like inside. You know, it, you could write a really dark book about what's No, in there. But, I totally disagree. But he does say, but, like... <laughs> it's also got mentions of, like, a fa- Mussolini's mentioned, like, uh, you've got a fascist dictator, someone who wants to be a fascist dictator just played as a completely <laughs> comic character in it you've got all of these elements but it's all kind of played for laughs yeah. but I mean I was saying you can take the basic kind of those elements of it and kind of do it differently so it's not like it doesn't exist in that world but it, it kind of it kind of does because but only as a as a backdrop yeah it's that's not, what I was thinking it never makes any sort of um you know, impact on the story itself. And yeah, um, as, as I was say, reading, I was reading up on Woodhouse because I didn't know anything about him. I was thinking, right, was he an aristocrat himself and everything? And no, he kind of wasn't. His parents kind of had ancient links to aristocracy, but he himself wasn't. And he couldn't go to Oxford because they were too they were too poor, basically, for him to follow in his older brother's footsteps, that kind of thing. During the First World War. He wasn't even in Britain. <laughs> he had poor eyesight and spent all of it in um, in America um, because he couldn't join the army. And his his antics in the Second World War yeah. are absolutely bizarre. What did he do? He um <laughs> so for tax purposes, he and his wife and his wife's um, daughter, who he uh, adopted, lived in France because he spent so much time in the U.S. that they wanted him to pay a lot of tax. And so to avoid this whole situation, they moved out of Britain and America to try and make things simpler. Um, so they were there um, from the mid-30s, I think. Um, so he would already have written this particular book um, by the time the Germans mm. invaded. They tried to escape, but got a flat tyre. <laughs> <laughs> Ended up trying to get, trying to get back, but so there was like a sea tire. of... You know, people leaving um, the area. They ended up just going home to their, you know, um, French mansion, wherever it was, which was taken over by the Germans. Um, Ethel, his wife, was allowed to remain there, but any enemy under the age of 60 had to be imprisoned, which included him at that time. Um, even under sort of pressure from the Americans, he wasn't released, but he was given a typewriter, at which point he just started merrily writing his novels again, even though he was in a cell made for one person with only one bed with three other people in it. Um, and then he was finally, in I think 1941, I've got it written down somewhere, released by the Germans to Berlin, where they kind of pressurised him into releasing these five public broadcasts, broadcasts to pro- America yeah. um, called 
How to Be an Internee Without Previous Training, in which he relayed humorous anecdotes <laughs> from his time in a German prison. And that basically turned him into the British kind of public enemy, I guess number two after Hitler. And um, they, they wanted him strung up. They wanted him sent back, but he ended up um, staying in, having to stay in Berlin. They wouldn't let him out until 1943 when he went back to France. And then he went back to America after the war. And while he was in France, there were all sorts of ridiculous arrangements where he had to stay in a hospital and things like that. So, to, so that they could say he was too ill to go back to Britain where he would be tried. Um, you know, for treason or something ridiculous like that. And um, the newspapers were full of all of this. Apparently editors couldn't fit the number of letters that wow. people were writing in his defence and all reviling him because of, um, you know, what he'd, what he'd done, basically, you know, helping the German propaganda machine. And he never went, he never went back to the UK. He stayed in America for the rest of his life, never yeah. left. It wasn't until 1965 that... Um, Britain announced they wouldn't pursue legal proceedings, even though there wasn't really anything to charge him with. George Orwell even wrote an essay called In Defense of P.G. Woodhouse, <laughs> in which he basically says that his only crime is stupidity. <laughs> and that he says um, his moral outlook has remained that of a public school boy, and later says that he just showed a complete lack of political awareness in all of his novels and things like that. And so it made me, it made me just think, wow, P.G. Woodhouse is Jeeves pretty much, isn't he? And <laughs> not sorry, not Jeeves, it's Bertie, but doesn't have a Jeeves to get on top of all these ridiculous messes. And yet, during all of this, he's still just there with his typewriter, Tapping you know, kind of continuing, yeah. yeah. And it's like it doesn't even have any impact on, on him. Maybe he wasn't a genius then, he just wrote what he knew, and that's uh... <laughs> Because it did get me quiet. But it's not even sort of based in English society because he was hardly ever there in English society. So I think a lot of it is just based on his... He watched um, the importance of being earnest. And then <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> well, his upbringing, you know, his, his, his public schoolboy days and, and that's kind of it. Yeah. I mean, the frame of reference that um, Bertie Worcester has is not great. So, I mean, if you wouldn't... It reminds me of a line from Calvin and Hobbes when the writer was talking about it. He said, it's brilliant writing this because all I need to know is as much as a six-year-old boy. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Apparently, um, Woodhouse had 20 aunts and 15 uncles, four of whom were clergymen. <laughs> which kind of... Um, that, that makes sense to me when I discovered that. Because this whole... And he and his brothers had to go and spend holidays with all these things. And he seems to do that himself, doesn't he? He's, he's like got, spending various holidays with this extended family. So a fear of ants. What's the line of well, ants um, oh, bellowing across? Bellowing across the tundra, or the, uh, bellowing across the plains like bison or something. But like mastodon. Yeah, all <laughs> life's problems are caused by ants. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, brilliant. I mean, yeah. The the only, I can't. Think, I'm trying to think of other butlers that people have written about. The only other one I can think of is Stevens from The Remains of the Day. Yeah, she's a very different character from Jeeves. I mean, he's much funnier, isn't he? Yeah, <laughs> just he's a laugh right at that bloke. But I want, I want, he's also a fascist as well, so you know. That's, uh, mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wanted to just expand it out a little bit because, you know, we're, we're recording this uh, two days after the uh, Ian Duncan Smith, the secretary, for the minister, uh, the Department of Work and Pensions, has resigned, citing. Can we give him back his old nickname, which was the Quiet One, I believe. The Quiet Man. The Quiet Man, if you remember that, no, back from the noughties. Uh, citing the fact that the 
uh, George Osborne in his, his budget this week uh, announced more cuts to uh, disability benefits while at the same time uh, cutting corporation tax um, and, and various other things for the very wealthy. And it just seems like, I don't know, the, the, the society that's depicted in Jeeves and Worcester, the working classes are, don't exist essentially mm. in that universe at all except as servants. Uh, in, even then in minimal amounts the idea of at various points in Jeeves and Worcester every now and then somebody will suggest that they might be in a position where they have to work for a living and it just causes horror you know <laughs> at the very yeah. prospect um, do you think do, do we still in Britain have do you think live in a society that's that class ridden or that is class ridden at all well it might be again now mightn't it with the decreased chances for social mobility and things like that yeah. And yet I do think everyone's in love with the class system um, still. I mean, Downton Abbey is, is... Huge. Yeah. And not just in Britain either. It's like, yeah, maybe there's an international fascination with the British class system. Well, they love our monarchy. Yeah. The world, you know, they, they don't... They, but Stuart Lee in his latest, um, <laughs> his latest episode sort of decries Downton Abbey for that. It's basically trying to say... Oh, the working class have it good, you know. Um, look how well they're treated. Look how much people care about them. Blah blah blah. And it's just sort of brushing all over it. He calls it some Tory propaganda. Um, and I do, I do feel that. And and I was talking about Evelyn Ward before, and um, in Brideshead revisited. It's you know same kind of thing that. There isn't even a butler there. I, I think the only working class person who's ever mentioned is Nanny Hawkins, you know, Sebastian Flight's, you know, governess from when he was when he was really small who still lives in the house and she's a kind of, you know, one kind of um thing that stays the same, stays consistent. So yeah, yeah. it's It feels like it's become less fashionable to talk about the working class or the upper class. That those words have fallen into disuse a little bit, and we talk about we use other phrases and other words for groups in society. The one percent and the ninety-nine percent. Yeah, or or chabs. Um, you know, the, chabs. The, we use a derogatory term. Yeah, yeah there's derogatory terms like chabs, or and and then there's phrases like you know uh, the disadvantaged people or uh, Germanic Clegg's alarm clock Britain. You know, all that sort of thing. The working poor. Yeah, but. Even though it's less fashionable to use just phrases like the working class, I mean, I still think there's those divides still exist. Oh, right? definitely. Mm. I think J.K. Rowling got into quite a lot of flack for it when she released Casual Vacancy as well. I haven't read that. It's no, me. I loved it. I know quite a lot of people that were quite lukewarm on it, um, but I really, 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 really enjoyed it. Um, and it is... It does look at class, and it looks at class. Yeah, it looks at class systems, and it looks at the oppression that comes from, from class. And it look and it, she just gets it, and she gets how what happens when you don't have opportunities in life. And she looks at it in a really empathetic way. And so, like some of the stuff isn't great. Like she does a lot of um, talking in this sort of quite you know sort of common dialect and. Mm. Um, and so, and which is quite patronising, but but she really like she really does like I did get the sense that she just she understands that for you know for people that come from a background that doesn't give them much opportunities that they that life is really really difficult for them and is that set in the present day? Yes, yeah, yeah. 
It is. It's set in a. It's just set in. This, it's set in this little village, and it's like it's it's a. This the actual plot isn't particularly interesting, but everything that goes on is. I just. It's. I absolutely stormed through it when I read it. It was. Mm. It was great. I remember the Daily Mail just decrying it as lefty propaganda. Yeah, they absolutely like a lot of the right-wing papers hated it. Telegraph was the same, and yeah, loads of people like loads of yeah. They were just. Really, I think, very disappointed in J.K. Rowling because obviously, like the Harry Potter books are really magical, sort of magical upper class. Yeah, it's school. a public school. Yeah, you get a few, you know, um, what's it, scholarship kids in there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I think I don't know. Being being born middle middle class uh, is almost like being born at room temperature. I've never been too hot or too cold, <laughs> so it's a bit difficult for me to really judge the situation in terms of class. I mean, I see money, and that's kind of a big thing. Uh, I see the fact that I have never managed to save anything in my life, and I'm now like 52 years old or something. <laughs> um, so that's the kind of uh, thing. I don't know. It's oh, Because another phrase people use these days is the precariat. Oh, hi. I've not which heard I, that one. Which, what's the precariat, Jess? It's uh, when your income is precarious indeed. <laughs> oh, yeah. I am a precariat also. Then. Me too. I think I am. Most people I know I prob- probably would yeah. I first came across it when my friend, um, who's a politics and philosophy um, sixth form teacher, um, used it to describe me <laughs> after <laughs> I quit my full-time teaching job. So <laughs> it's like, ah, interesting. Well, yeah, yeah, which brings in sort of, you know, the millennial, and then you've also got shows on TV about um, Benefit Street, that kind of thing, yeah. and it's just, it sort of does show you that people are obsessed with defining the sort of area. I mean, I mean and it's, um, we, we are, I mean, you know, the, the, the Prime Minister went to Eaton, the... the the, the, uh, the Osborne, Boris Johnson, the Bullingdon Club. Yeah, best you know, man. <laughs> we are, it, it does feel like there's definitely... Uh, I think there's, there's definitely a. I wouldn't. I'd hesitate to define it because there's always exceptions to everything. But I think there's, there's definitely, absolutely, mm-hmm. clearly, mobility, social mobility problems in Britain. I think, and I think it's harder and harder. It's getting harder and harder for people who are who are from the working classes, if you like, to to improve their lot. Um, I spe- particularly with increased squeezes on public spending all the time and on infrastructure and on social programmes. Uh, and if you've kind of got a government that believes that self-reliance is the mm-hmm. way to go and that social programmes are uh, training people into dependency, if that's their kind of uh, philosophical view, which in my view is incorrect, then it's going to get harder and harder for, and the class system is going to get more and more rigid. Yeah, culturally it's become a, um, an issue as well. I, I know um, a lot of people who were sort of talking about the lack of roles for anyone who's working class uh, as an actor yeah. and that, that yeah. kind of thing and that a lot of those roles are... And you see this on TV, you just think, yeah, that's not a very, um, a very realistic portrayal of someone who's in that sort of situation and also with um with writing itself it's one of the weird things about this you know at the time um like i said he'd um pg woodhouse didn't go to university or anything like that he ended up um you know working as a, a banker i think for a little while while he was sort of began writing but then as soon as his first book was published he, he gave that up and was you know right i'm going to be a first time i'm going to be a novelist now a full time 
but um, yeah, you're not gonna you're not gonna get that with anyone who's not extremely privileged, and it's gonna become more and more difficult, I think, given I don't know the expense of um, tuition fees on MA there, writing programs. There's four think. people here, and three of us are either teachers or ex-teachers. So one thing people would say in response to this claim about social mobility kind of stalling or halting, and and I'm interested to know what you would make this as teachers or ex-teachers is. One, one thing that a lot of people say is that one solution to that is the grammar school. And that is a way of promoting social mobility. I don't think it is. Well, um, that is what, that's what, that's the kind of view of a lot of people, isn't I'm it? That's the way for the working classes. I'm going to talk, to talk about it as a mathematician. Okay, go on. So, um, the grammar school, if you have a near 11 plus put on it, on a given day, certain children might get the variance of a score on 11 plus from a passing grade to, because it's a pass or fail system, on a given day, like you can get 20% or so of children who are either gonna get a pass or not gonna get a pass, just depending on which day they take the test. And there's quite a lot of fluidity in that. So basically you get a system where a lot of children are going to be written off just kind of arbitrarily. You've got this big wadge in the middle. Um, and also that doesn't really help with social mobility anyway, for lots and lots of different reasons, because you've got People from higher income families are going to give their kids tutors, etc., etc. It's, I don't think it's really the way to go, at all. I yeah, I mean, like with, I can remember sort of getting into some disagreement to somebody about somebody um somebody saying that they thought it was the the duty as a parent to try and provide the best education for the child, and that you were being a, and you were a good parent if you got your child into private school and you were a lesser parent if you didn't do that. Um, it's a zero-sum game. Yeah, and, but I always thought, like, it's just not as simple as that. Like, where I grew up, there was no private school or ex-grammar school for miles and miles. It would have took me, like, an hour and a half to get to school there There was plenty in Cheshire, though. Yes, but uh, <laughs> as I know from my college experience, um, that um, traditionally people from my town got bullied out of um, more uh, middle class colleges. We were offered counselling um, in our college because <laughs> because so shocking. many children from my town had been bullied out of it. Wow. In some ways, I think the grammar school question. I remember that being asked on a question time recently ish. But now that with the announcement that every school's going to become an academy, yeah. maybe it's sort of an irrelevant question. I don't know. We don't know, do we? Yeah. So, I, I think the, the grammar school thing, I, I think it's a classically conservative policy in the sense that it, it focuses your attention on you as an individual and your family as individuals rather than wider, rather than thinking about society more widely. And I, just, I always feel that conservative policies are aimed at that, at that unit so they encourage you to yeah, think like about what Yeah, like what Gemma best... was just saying about that, that woman's opinion that, you know... They encourage you to think about what's best for you. So you might think, as a, as a working class family, you might think, well, okay, if there's some grammar schools around, my child might be able to get into that grammar school and that might give them better chances in life than otherwise. And then if somebody came along and said, okay, but there are wider ramifications to that for social mobility as a whole in society, the policy is not designed to think about that. It's designed to make you think about yourself and your what's best for you and your family, kind of individually. And I feel like a lot of conservative policies do that. The the right the rights buying on council houses is another really good example where it's it's beneficial for you as an individual or as a family unit, 
there are consequences beyond that for society that are not as good but the policy of the conservative view is there to make you think about yourself and yeah. grammar school is a perfect example of that and i think that they, they they're seductive because they seem to benefit you individually and they do in some case they will do in some cases but i still think that's not the point mm. um, and, and there are wider implications thinking about social mobility it does seem to me a few from the statistics that i've seen anyway i mean obviously there's damn lies lies and statistics so, um that it is worse um but one of the things i think that's happened in like is the increasing rate of improvement of technology so whilst yeah we haven't got it as good relatively as we should have you know we constantly like com- the technology that we have in our lives have actually made it appreciably better I suppose so is that keeping a balance going and will it keep a balance going for a little while you know is this why there's not revolt on the street because I mean in terms of there was though there totally <laughs> was <laughs> and yes. got looted technology <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. uh, anyway. it's no it's true uh, well Rousseau called all art um the flowers that you know that hid the chains yeah. and i guess technology is kind of part of that maybe yeah i don't know maybe there's a better point to be to be made by more of a brain thinker than me i'm <laughs> more of a, a mouth opener um what what, what would roderick spode think <laughs> <laughs> what would roderick spode you wanted to talk more it's a question him. i ask myself often <laughs> what, what would spode do and then do the opposite <laughs> I, I, I can't, so this does bring up, bring up the point that I wanted to make about Woodhouse because he's obviously, he's a really fucking talented, he's, he's a really talented, <laughs> we'll sort that in the edit, yeah. <laughs> he's a really talented uh, writer, but you know, obviously you're not getting a lot of stuff from him, and uh, I always, I often like have the feeling as, there's no social commentary there, yeah, but if, if you're like, um, if, you know, it's theoretically possible that you could be an absolutely wonderful painter, like a really accurate one, but have nothing to paint or you could be an amazing writer you can really construct a sentence and have nothing to say and I was thinking you know writing is a kind of interesting one for this because it's of usually an individual pursuit so you've got Woodhouse he's really excellent at one thing um, I mean I would say that this book is absolutely fantastic um, and much funnier than Catcher in the Rye it is much <laughs> but it's also much funnier than H's for Hawk. Yeah, but not at the same time, I would say, as good of work as uh, Catcher in the Rye. But um, I mean, it just made me kind of think about, because you've got films, things like films where you can really specialise and you can be good at one thing. But is there like just universes where certain people who are really famous at the moment and for being really good at things, it's just whatever they're really good at doesn't quite exist? For example, you're thinking about Shaquille O'Neal. Right, great basketball player in his time. I'm very limited in certain ways, but if basketball <laughs> didn't exist, what would he be doing? Or you've kind of got Leo Messi. You know, he's really good specifically at football as it is now. But would he be any good a hundred years ago when it was basically beating each other up? Or and you know, you get all these like people who are really good at doing keepy ups in the street, but actually aren't very good at football. So yeah. it's just people who have really very specific, specific talents that just don't exist in the can world. I, can I give you a quote on, on that? So Richard Usborne, who um, wrote in a, a sort of investigation into um, Woodhouse, said, only a writer who was himself a scholar and had had his face ground into Latin and Greek as a boy could sustain the complex sequences of subordinate clauses that you sometimes found in his comic prose. <laughs> and I just thought, nah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's 
not there's not that many subordinate clauses. It's just uh, the ramblings of a you know but, an interesting man. But, I mean, are there any other writers you can think of who like sci-fi is a classic for this one. You get certain writers. Um, who were just like, wow, they've got amazing ideas, but God, they can't write. I mean, uh, Kurt Vonnegut made the whole thing of it with uh, Kilgore Trout. He was one of the worst writers physically to have existed, but his stories were amazing. So they used to read the first page, the middle page, and the last page <laughs> just to get the plot of the book. Sometimes I, 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 there's controversially, isn't Stephen King pretty rubbish at prose? I think he's good at it. Really? Yeah. I read, well, in yeah. On Writing, his book On Writing, where you would have thought he was trying to show off. See, that always gets number readers. one as like, the best Stephen King book. Really? Oh, it's terribly written. Oh, I look forward to reading it. There's, like, there's interesting stuff in there. The content's really good, and obviously the content of his, of his books in terms of the plotting and characters is something that... Is, is amazing, but his actual writing ability... Ugh. I think he's good. I think he's a, a talented writer. It reminds me, uh, before we started recording, we were talking about Usain Bolt and how he makes it look easy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what Stephen King's books are like. They just make it look easy. When you read a Stephen King book, you are propelled through it at a, a feral mm. lick. I think that's, but the, that's... Isn't that plot that does that? Though I've, I've read badly, badly written, but sort of nicely plotted books that do that to me. But Stephen King, you see, I, I can't read without editing his language use. As I, I see, go I, see I, 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 I differ because I further to what you were saying a minute ago, John. I remember, for example, I read this book once called Riverworld, which is a sci-fi book. And it's love, about a planet. Philip Jose it's a planet where there's this massive long river, and along its banks are all people from history at various points along the bank, and the protagonist is making his way down this river in a, in a boat. And it's like it's quite a nice idea, but the writing is absolutely appalling. <laughs> I was reading it. I can't. I cannot trudge through this I'm nonsense. Go, I'm gonna have when to. When I read um, Stephen King, I'm gonna have to get, um, say no on that one. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I just thought that I can't. I'm not reading this. I'm not. I'm not wading through this terrible prose. Uh, when I read Stephen King, like I read Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three, which is now coming out as a TV show, and I thought that was brilliant. I just ploughed through it, mm. and I think that's an underrated skill in writing to make it seem so easy. I see that with people like Agatha Christie, where I just think, yeah, she she puts everything there, but I, you know, I never need to edit her in my head. I mean, it's just <laughs> it, it, but he's similar to me to someone like Spielberg in films, you know, where you a populist. Yeah, yeah, and it is populist stuff, but that's fine. And when you watch a Spielberg film, you have this sense that the professionals are here. It's all we're taking care of. You just sit back, and we will make sure that's that exactly everything you need is That's exactly what Mark Kermode said about Bridge of Spies. And yeah, and and Stephen King's books are like that for me. You know, you just feel like it's all going to be, everything I need is going to be given to me in the, in the place that I need it to be given. So funnily enough, Philip Jose Farmer, which you said, wrote the dog rule that is a uh, river <laughs> yeah. great idea, actually wrote a book as Kilgore Trout, which Kurt Vonnegut was really displeased with, <laughs> <laughs> like as a joke, so all, all links together really. <laughs> Well, the other thing How about, did we get here from class? No, I was going to say this for me, sorry. But I was thinking about Usain Bolt. If the if the race, if there wasn't 100 metres and 200 metres, but there's 300 metres, he would merely be an average runner. That's if, not true. He thought about going up to 400 metres. Yeah, but he said he wanted to play for Manchester United as well. It was all talk. I'm going to play for Manchester United. I'm going to do this. I'm <laughs> no, going to do that. No, that wasn't serious. That was like... Yeah, we said but he didn't do it, did he? But it's... Uh, Part of Bolt's thing is saying these things isn't it yeah. but but with the 300 meters three 300 meters was 400 meters that was a serious thing because he was finding the 100 and 200 too easy 
you know? Mm. And um, it was another record of Michael Johnson's that's, you know, standing there and gleaming, you know, the last, the last one. So, I, in, in conclusion, I would say... <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't talk to me <laughs> about athletics. <laughs> Uh, about that new Top Gear, right? it's as I think it, it's as worth watching the Fry and Laurie Jeeves and Muster as it is to read them. I think the Fry and Laurie Jeeves and Muster are hilarious and brilliant. I I remember watching them when I was about sixteen and just think I went round to my friend Gareth's house and we used to watch them and they were just the funniest things. Uh, and the books are an absolute joy. I think the Code of the Worcesters is one of the best ones, but there's loads of them. There's abs- if you if you look on Wikipedia, there is. He wrote lots and lots and lots. Mm-hmm. And he did other series, like Jess was talking about the Blind Bings one. He did lots of series of books, Woodhouse. Um, and no matter how depressed you might get about the state of British society, I think it's it's worth dipping into just because they're so much fun. Uh, right, shall we end there? Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Um, and p- please go and read some Woodhouse. It's well worth your time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.